Hey everybody, it's Lon Seidman. It's time once again for your weekly wrap up. And as many of you know, I've been teaching a class at the University of Hartford on entrepreneurial content creation. And one of the things that you always have to be looking out for are changes to the ecosystem. And there's a very big change coming that I'm going to share with my students this week. And that is the implications of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. And we're gonna take a look at whether or not this deal is actually gonna happen, because I'm not sure it will and also some ideas that I had for making Twitter better than it is now. And I am sure there'll be plenty of opinions down in the comments section after you watch this video. Let's get to it. So let's take a look and see what this deal is all about. Now, Twitter is a publicly traded company, which means they have stock that you can buy in the stock market. Elon is offering to buy every single share that is out there for a price of $54.20, and that will come to a total of about $44 billion. Now, Elon's got a lot of money, but the Twitter board didn't think he had that much, but apparently Elon was able to put together the financing to come up with $44 billion to buy all of these active shares. And as a result of that, the board is obligated by law, essentially, to make this offer available to the shareholders for their uh, vote essentially to decide whether or not to move forward with this. So shareholders could decide not to do it, but I think given how much money they'll get per share, which is I think far beyond what anyone expected Twitter stock to be worth, uh, this deal will likely go through if it gets to the point where shareholders will have a say. But there's a big question in my mind as to whether or not he will go through with this deal. And the reason is, is that it's not just Elon buying Twitter, he's getting financing from a bunch of investment banks who are going to do some due diligence and determine whether or not the company is worth what uh, they are all together going to pay for it. If you take a look at Twitter's most recent quarterly results, which just came out a couple of days ago, uh, they had a $128 million operating loss. Twitter blames the war in Ukraine for economic headwinds that are hurting their advertising business, but at the same time, the war in Ukraine likely led to greater activity on the Twitter platform. Their average monetizable daily active usage number uh, was up almost 16% compared to this time last year. So one would think that with that much more traffic, they could make that much more money, but in fact, their costs went up a lot higher and their advertising revenues did not. So that is a cause for concern, at least if I was buying this company. There's also some question as to whether or not these users are actually real people. Uh, there is some indication that Twitter has not been counting them accurately. They had three years where they were overstating the number of monetizable daily active users due to a feature change that they did not account for. And then of course we have the issue of bots. And this is something that uh, definitely happens to Elon Musk all the time. Every time he posts something, there's a million of these little impersonating accounts with the same uh, thumbnail picture there that start posting all this crypto nonsense. Now, in fairness to Twitter, this happens on YouTube and a bunch of other places as well, but it's really bad on Twitter. And how bad is it? Well, the website sparkturo.com, which does analyses of Twitter accounts, suggests that more than half of Elon's followers are fake accounts. And you can head over to the link you see on screen and see what their methodology is for determining what makes an account real versus fake. Uh, but it does give you some indication that perhaps the number of real people actually using the site are much lower than the numbers suggest. And Elon also posted this the other day in the run-up to his offer to buy Twitter. 
that the 10 most followed Twitter accounts publish very little content. He says, for example, Taylor Swift hasn't posted anything in three months, and Justin Bieber, who's number two on the list, only posted once this entire year. And ultimately, I think the value of Twitter is not so much the numbers of users it has, which is important to shareholders, but rather the influence those users have over other media. Twitter is a real amplification platform, and that's something that Dave Weiner, who's one of the fathers of modern blogging, pointed out the other day, where he said that it's not so much a public square as it is the worldwide newsroom and cocktail party. So there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not this deal is actually going to happen. You can see some of that in this Reuters article. Uh, basically, Elon can get out of this, but he's going to have to pay a billion dollars to exit the deal, and there could be some legal action to try to force him to make the purchase, but it looks like he does have an out if it's decided that this deal's not going to work for him. And Twitter's in a really bad spot here because if Elon does back out, it means the company isn't worth what they say it is, and that is going to really tank its stock. So it's really in both parties' interests here to get this deal done, and Elon may end up paying less than the price he's currently offering to pay, I think, but what do I know? We'll find out soon enough. Now, a lot of people are concerned about what Twitter is going to look like when Elon Musk takes over, and I thought we would step through some things that he has planned for the platform. I don't think these changes are going to be as significant as people think they will be, given some of the constraints he'll be under. Now, the big thing is that he's going to take the company private, which means that this publicly traded company is now going to be privately held. That will give them a lot more flexibility when it comes to decision-making because the only stakeholders they will have to answer to are the users and the advertisers, whereas now they've got users, advertisers, and shareholders. And the shareholders often had a lot more weight in the decision-making process because they were the ones who owned the company and their board reflected what the shareholders wanted. Uh, Elon will now be able to pick the leadership that runs the company and I think that will help the business model a bit, but the same constraints that Twitter is under now in dealing with its advertisers will also continue under private ownership. Advertisers are not gonna want their stuff next to things that are really controversial, and he's gotta figure out a way to navigate that so his bankers are happy uh, with the revenue growth of the company moving forward. Another big change that Elon is suggesting is that users will have to authenticate themselves. And he said as much in a tweet on April 21st that he's going to authenticate all real humans. And that's something Twitter does not do right now. And I think when this happens, the actual number of users on Twitter that we just talked about will likely be a lot lower. So I'm eager to see how he plans to figure this out. Uh, Telegram, of course, requires that you have a cell phone uh, to register on their platform, but of course that doesn't keep the bots out. So I'm really curious to see what level of authentication Elon has in mind for when he takes over this platform. Now the next item is probably the most controversial one of this purchase because this is largely driving Elon's motivation uh, to purchase Twitter, which involves free speech. And we're gonna talk a lot about free speech in my ideas here coming up. And there wasn't a lot of articulation as to what he means by it, uh, but he did articulate something the other day on Twitter to clarify what he means by free speech. And he says, by free speech, I simply mean that which matches the law. I am against censorship that goes far beyond the law. 
If people want less free speech, they will ask the government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people. Now, the law that he's talking about, I'm guessing, is U.S. law, which is probably the freest speech you have in the world. I can walk out on the street and say whatever I want, and I won't be arrested for having an opinion. There are some countries, like Russia right now, where you will be arrested for stating an opinion, even if you're not doing anything that disturbs the public or causes violence. Now, uh, there are other laws, though, because in the EU, they have specific rules about content moderation that we do not have in the United States. A lot of things that Europe does are unconstitutional here in the US, and he's going to have to abide by the laws in different countries like Twitter does now. I found a great thread uh, from the former CEO of Reddit, Yishan Wong, and I think this really sums up the problem that social media platforms are dealing with right now, but this also talks about where Elon is coming from, and to a large degree, I'm in the same place on this free speech stuff as well. And it's very much a Generation X thing where a lot of us who grew up with the internet coming into being saw this as a free speech platform that was going to lead to a lot of new and exciting things in society, which it has largely. And I would argue the internet has done far more good for society than harm. But like everything, there's always a balance to be made. And Yishan points out here that in the early days of the internet, right when things were really taken hold, the first thing the government tried to do was restrict and regulate content. And they picked on video games back in 1993. There were Senate hearings over Mortal Kombat and Sega's approach to video gaming versus Nintendo's. There was this famous clip, which I have up on the screen there, uh, where the Nintendo president says, Night Trap will never be on a Nintendo console. This was a live action CD-ROM game. Of course, it is now available on the Nintendo Switch, so times do change, don't they? And you also had folks like Senator James Exxon. Now, Exxon, uh, from what I have read, never actually went on the internet, but he had his staff go out and find the most grotesque porn that he could. He printed it out, put it in a binder, and then started showing it to all of his Senate colleagues, many of whom were not on the internet either, and that led to the Communications Decency Act. So he had all these things happening to restrict this new uh, method of communicating that for many of us believed it could, as Yishan points out here, lead to a flowering of the human spirit and a great optimism that technology, as he says here, could birth a new golden age of mankind. But Yishan says, I also ran Reddit, and I think that gives him an additional perspective on this. Now Yishan goes on to say that a lot of the problems related to dealing with content filtering on these platforms is not necessarily the topics that are being covered, but it's the behavior of the users that are talking about these topics. And he's largely right here, but I think what's happening is that these platforms' inability or unwillingness to regulate behavior has led to them going into topics. And this one's gonna be real controversial, but I think it's worth pointing out because it is something that happened around the election in 2020, where Facebook and Twitter decided not to allow a story in the New York Post, this was the famous one about Hunter Biden's laptop, from going out onto their platforms. So not only was the New York Post uh, disallowed from posting on Facebook and Twitter, anyone who was posting links to that story had those links disappear as well. And this was because the platform did not agree with the sourcing of the article. They were making a very editorial decision here. And this is one example, I think, where content itself was filtered out 
for editorial reasons, probably out of fear of what behaviors might result from that content being made available. And I think that ultimately is the uh, challenge here that these platforms have to face. And yes, this is controversial, uh, but Twitter did admit, at least Jack Dorsey did before he stepped down, that the way they handled the blocking of the New York Post story was incorrect. And of course, hindsight is always 2020. And I think that's the real challenge that Elon faces here is the behavioral aspect. And we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. The next item that he was talking about was open sourcing the algorithm so that people would know whether or not their story is making it out onto Twitter for people to see or if there was something that was causing it to be filtered. Now this practice is known as shadow banning and what this means is that your post is still accessible if somebody knows the link to it or is looking at Twitter in a certain way, but it's not something that gets sucked into the algorithm and presented out to a broad number of people, including your followers. So for example, Twitter, just like YouTube and Facebook and everything else, algorithmically now delivers your feed to you. So when I loaded up Twitter here, uh, SpawnWave's tweet is not the newest one from the people I follow, but this is the newest tweet that Twitter thinks that I might engage with. And if I find a bunch of engaging content right when I load up my app, I am less likely to go over to a competing app to see what's over there if nothing interests me right away. Now you can change it, but it's not very clear to the user. You have to go up into the upper right-hand corner here, hit the star, and go to latest tweets. And when you do that, uh, you will then see the newest tweets first. And for a while, I think Twitter was actually automatically reverting you back to the algorithmic one after a certain period of time. But most users never do this. It's just like the subscription feed on YouTube. And this is where if somebody wanted to block content, you can do that in a way that doesn't tick off somebody directly because they don't even know they're being filtered out. All they see is that their tweet wasn't very successful at reaching people. All right, so now that we know the lay of the land, if you're still with me, let's take a look at some of the ideas that I have because just in case Mr. Musk is watching, here's what I would do to make Twitter better and I would love to hear your thoughts down in the comments as well. Uh, the first thing I would do is get rid of this blue checkmark elitism that we see across the platform. Twitter has a policy in place where they verify users so that you can discern perhaps between a real Elon Musk and one of his imposter accounts that is trying to sell you crypto. And I've always looked at this as kind of a surrendering to their lack of ability to control bots on the platform. And for a while they were just giving blue check marks out to anybody, but now the thresholds are very high. In fact, if you don't work for a major media organization, you're not gonna get your blue check mark. And there's a lot of benefits that come with the blue check. Uh, in many cases, uh, if you have a blue check, you can filter out seeing anything from people who don't have a blue check, so it becomes more of an echo chamber. Uh, you can also do things like upload longer video. And the other day I tweeted this out. There was a great story on CNN uh, that they posted to one of their reporters' Twitter pages about spending the day uh, with these incredibly brave first responders in Ukraine and they were able to upload a video package that I think was about six minutes long. But they could do that because of their blue check mark. Because I don't have a blue check mark, I am not essentially allowed to upload my full length content to Twitter because the default length for those of us without the blue check is 140 seconds. 
I can talk to my Twitter account manager, which I don't have, to try to get longer video uploads. And so this really makes it difficult for independent voices to be seen and heard in this elite echo chamber that has kind of developed on the platform. Now this next one will no doubt generate some discussion in my comment thread, and there's a lot to think about with this, but I'm gonna approach this at a more macro level, and we can argue about the micro in the comment section. But one of the things that really bugs me about social media today is that algorithmic recommendations are not balancing political content. In other words, if I am looking at a lot of left-leaning content, for example, I'm going to be recommended more left-leaning content to keep me on that platform, as opposed to having a counterbalancing right-leaning piece to that left-leaning one. Their algorithms are completely capable of doing this because they can lead uh, viewers in one direction or the other. And why they're not trying to make some recommendations that might expand points of view is kind of beyond me, because I think this would solve, or at least begin to solve, a lot of the issues they have right now with members of Congress who feel that there might need to be more regulation in this space. And we've had things on the books that are very similar to this in other media. So for example, to this day, we have an equal time law for broadcasters here in the United States. And what that means is that if I am a candidate for office and my opponent gets interviewed for a news story, they have to make an effort to include my point of view in that news story as well. It doesn't direct the editorial content necessarily. It just means that both sides need equal time. And you could dis debate whether or not the other side has a valid argument or not, but this is the law here in the US. This also applies to purchasing advertising. So in a broadcast scenario, I have to be offered the same time of advertising space at the same cost as my opponent. And one other little note that people aren't always aware of inside of this uh, equal time rule is that uh, television broadcast stations are prohibited from blocking an ad from a candidate. So a candidate can say, and this has been the case since like the 1930s, a candidate can say whatever they want if they're paying for the ad, it cannot be taken down under any circumstances per federal law. Now there was another law which went away called the Fairness Doctrine. And this comes up every couple of years. And I'm not suggesting that we apply a Fairness Doctrine to social media platforms, but I think if they look at the intent around this, which is to provide varying points of view on controversial topics, that this might be a good model for determining some changes to how these algorithms work. Because I don't think it's a bad thing for people to be exposed to points of view that differ from their current opinion. And the question, of course, is how do you decide what gets put in front of the user? Well, I think a lot of that could be determined by behavior. And that leads me to point three here, and this was inspired by Yashan's post on Twitter in regards to behavior versus the topic. And one of the things that uh, I do in my spare time is serve on a local board of education. In fact, I am on two boards of education. I chair one of them. And this is an elected position. I was very grateful to be nominated by both parties here in my town. So I had the Democratic and the Republican nomination. And one of my jobs when I am chairing a meeting is to ensure that when we have a public audience of citizens, which is part of our agenda, that I protect the rights of people to speak, even if I disagree with them. And what that means is that if someone comes to the meeting and has something to say, they will be heard. 
But there are limits to speech in the sense that the way we behave will determine uh, whether or not that speech can be listened to. Now, I live in Connecticut, which is known as the Constitution State, and we are called that because we were one of the first colonies in the 17th century to establish a written constitution. And a lot of the governance structure that was put together then is still kind of in place in some ways for our local governments here. But one of the things that we have in our state constitution is a declaration of rights, which is very similar to the U.S. Bill of Rights, which gives every citizen the opportunity to freely speak and write and publish on anything they want without any uh, ramifications for that. But they are responsible for the abuse of that liberty. And I think that's the issue that a lot of these social media platforms have not done well, which is that they promote and amplify bad behavior. And we see it all the time. And this really hurts public discourse because things have devolved into personal attacks and shouting matches, whereas there is legitimate policy discussions that could be taking place here that can enhance democracy. Now, there are models that Twitter can look at for coming up with ideas here. And this one, I think, is something worth taking a look at. Back in the BBS days, there was an enormous amateur network called FidoNet. Sometimes it was called FitoNet because of all of the passionate discussions that would happen on their message boards. At one point, FidoNet had about, I think, 25,000 bulletin board systems all over the world linked up to each other via telephone lines. It was a remarkable uh, amateur network achievement. And they spent a lot of time trying to come up with ways to set expectations for behavior, not only for users, but also all of the system operators of the various nodes that made up this network. And by the way, FidoNet still exists to this day. You can log into a Telnet BBS and participate in those ongoing discussions. They have a policy document that stated out all of their rules. This is version 4.07 from 1989, which I think is the most recent version. And this was developed democratically by all the stakeholders in the network. And they mentioned behavior no less than 22 times throughout this document. And they had an underlying philosophy here is that thou shalt not excessively annoy others and thou shalt not be too easily annoyed. And that set the tone, I think. And I think if we do uh, look at Twitter going private as an opportunity to look at our own behavior and how we interact with others and maybe set some rules around expectations in that way, just like there are expectations when you walk into a school board meeting to say something that is on your mind. I think we can make some progress here. Maybe I'm optimistic about this, but I think if anyone has an opportunity to look at this issue, a privately held Twitter, which is not going to have to report user numbers publicly every quarter, might be able to implement something to finally get us back on track to some degree in our discourse. All right, idea number four here is to require verification as Elon wants to do, but still allow for anonymous speech. And this is important because anonymous speech here in the United States is protected. There's a lot of good reasons to do anonymous speech, especially if you're a whistleblower trying to expose some government wrongdoing or whatever. And also parody accounts are really important and equally protected under the law. So there's going to have to be some way uh, to allow this anonymous communication to occur. Otherwise, I think it's not truly a free speech platform. My fifth idea is that Twitter Blue, which is the Twitter subscription plan, should get rid of ads. Right now, Twitter Blue costs $3 a month, and you get a couple of features that you don't get on regular Twitter, but you still get ads. And I think the 
ads have become increasingly annoying on this platform. And just like YouTube, I'm more than willing, because I'm such an active user of Twitter, to pay the fee to get rid of the ads. But until they do that, I'm not interested. Maybe I'd even pay five bucks a month if I didn't have to see ads. Uh, the next one here, of course, goes without saying, which is an edit button. But like everything, nothing is quite simple. And, and when I posted this on Twitter the other day, uh, none other than Keith Olbermann, uh, who used to be on MSNBC, replied to me and says, you cannot have an edit button. Not only could politicians and sports experts gaslight their previous utterances, but something you RT'd could be altered and you would wake up to discover that you had endorsed cannibalism. And he makes a very good point that you could you know, retweet something from a month ago and suddenly have it changed. I think what would work for the edit button would be that any likes and retweets that you accumulated would go away when you went and edited the tweet. That might eliminate that problem. Because oftentimes I'll post a thread and realize I have a couple of grammatical errors in there and I can't go back and fix it. So most of the editing that I would do would be within the first five or 10 minutes or so. Uh, so it would be nice to see that and maybe have that edit come with some kind of cost of having to reaccumulate uh, your retweets and hearts might be worthwhile. Uh, another thing that Elon is talking about is open sourcing the algorithm. I think he should not only open source the algorithm, but all of Twitter's code and allow those uh, self-installed Twitter installations that would result from open source code to federate content throughout Twitter's network. And the best model for this would be how WordPress works. You can sign up for WordPress at wordpress.com and pay them and have them host everything, or you can download their open source uh, blogging engine, which is the same one they run commercially, and host it yourself. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One, it's important for us to see the code and how the algorithm works. But also, look how easily Vladimir Putin cut off all these platforms and knocked out a lot of voices that his country could be listening to right now. When you have all your eggs in a single platform's basket, it's very easy to pull that basket away and silence millions of voices all at once. Whereas if you had a self-hosted option that federates, it's a lot harder to clamp down on speech you don't like. So regardless of how you feel about Elon taking over Twitter, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about if this deal goes through. And I would love to hear what you have to say down in the comments below. I'm definitely anticipating some heat on a few topics, and I'm sure there's things that I haven't thought about, just like my edit button comment there. So I would love to hear from you uh, with some things that you think may or may not work, and maybe some ideas that you have that I did not cover here. And if there's enough of them, maybe we'll do a video talking about all of your ideas as well. So lots more to talk about here with Elon's Twitter. Now, this week's wrap-up is being brought to you by all of you. And I want to thank some super chatters who contributed during a recent live stream that I did. They include Tech Time with Eric, Keith Robinson, and Alien. I want to thank all of these folks who contributed last week and all of you who contribute on an ongoing basis and all of you who watch on a regular basis too because all of those things equal channel growth. And if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. We also support the YouTube membership program, Floatplane, and Patreon. I've got a bunch of other places you can follow me on, including my Amazon page at lon.tv slash Amazon shop. And there I post my videos, most of them, uh, without any advertisements because Amazon works a little bit differently. So you can follow me there and see my live streams there as well. We have a bunch of ways to engage with the channel. And I recently set up a blog at blog.lon.tv. 
and you can get a digest email to you every couple of days at lon.tv digest. About 100 of you so far have signed up for that. Uh, the blog is a whole collection of stuff that I encounter throughout the week that interests me. Instead of tweeting, I blog first and then tweet because I'm trying to start centralizing my content on something that I own and control. I'll do a video about that maybe next week as to how I put that all together and how I'm making uh, it work with other things. Uh, we also have my Facebook group, the Discord, and my Telegram channel if you want to find me on some other platforms. And we also have a store where I sell previously reviewed items. Most of these are things that I purchased to review and I'm now getting rid of. And most of them are pretty much brand new but are being sold at a price that reflects it being used because I did take it out of the box and review it. So if you want a good deal on something, uh, check out the store at lon.tv store. And I have a separate email list for the store. So if you want to get notified every time I add something to the store, you can sign up for the email there and you will get pushed a notification every time a new item is added. That is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Hope you all found it interesting. I am uh, really enjoying teaching this subject at my college, so I've been spending a lot of time like analyzing this stuff, and I am just fascinated with what might happen with Twitter rolling forward, and I hope you enjoyed listening to me think about it in this week's video. That's going to do it for now. Until next time, this is Lon Sybin. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters including Gold Level supporters Jim Tannis and Tom Albrecht, Hot Sauce and Video Games and Eric's Variety Channel, Brian Parker and Frank Goldman, Amda Brown and Matt Zagaya, and Chris Allegretta. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.